This week we are concluding our study of the fear of man. This is our sixth week, I think, uh, doing this. And, you know, we've kind of, as we've gone through this course or this study, we've thought about how we struggle with the fear of man in our lives, how it affects our relationships, how it affects the way we present the gospel or don't present the gospel, um, how it affects our relationship with the Lord. And so we've looked at how we fear man by exposure. We fear rejection by man. We fear harm, both physical and and mental harm. Um, And then we've looked at what Scripture says about fearing God and how Scripture calls on us to fear the Lord and how we can help overcome our fear of man by fearing God more, by having a greater view of the Lord and who He is. So we hold God in such high esteem and we, we see Him in such awe uh, that that kind of shadows the fear that we have of other people. And so our fear is rightly placed in a holy God and not misplaced in the world. So what's the opposite of fear? fearing people? Uh, what we're going to look at today is we're going to see that the opposite of fearing people is loving people. We're not called to simply stop fearing people. We're also called to love them. Uh, We're called to love them through actions. Uh, This is something that isn't going to be something that's going to happen overnight for us. We're going to struggle with this throughout our lives. And when we do struggle with loving people and when we struggle with uh, battling that fear that we have that can sometimes paralyze us, we need to repent. Of it, We need to keep that at the forefront of our minds. We need to keep our eyes fixed on Christ and really just be confident that he can finish the work that he started in us. So for this to happen in our lives, we're going to have to kind of reorient our vision for how we live our lives. We're going to have to have a new vision for how we live our lives. We're only able to truly understand what it means to love others instead of fearing them as we understand and live in the reality of a changed relationship with God. So when God saves us, He reorients our hearts to Him. He changes our desires. He changes the way we think. And and we can clearly see for the first time what coming to the cross truly means, what what happened on the cross. And, and, And we can see that despite our disobedience, despite our repeated sin against the Lord, He's made a way for us. Grace becomes real in our, not, or in our lives, and we're able to show that grace to other people. So this morning, I just want to really begin by taking a look at 1 John chapter 4. So if you have your Bibles, uh, if you could turn to that. So 1 John chapter 4, and we're just going to begin in verse 7. And as we read this passage, I want you to notice how John describes God's love for us. And how this description of God's love really provides an example for how we should love others. So verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world, so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that 
we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be a propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. By this we know that that we abide in Him and He in us because He has given us of His Spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. But by this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, all, has, he is so also are we in the world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For, for he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So as we read this, we see that God's love was costly. It cost God something. God's love sent Jesus to the cross to die, and Jesus provides the perfect example and the ultimate example of the one that loved others in the most costly, difficult, and painful of ways. So as we think about what it means to love others instead of fearing them, we must first learn to understand God's love for us. And this is the example that we follow. This is the template for our lives. This is what we should strive for. So as we're reoriented reoriented to God, as our hearts and our desires change, we recognize his gracious choice to love us. And this shouldn't boost our self-esteem. This doesn't puff us up, but it should devastate our pride. You know, pride is the driving force behind our fear of man. It's the driving force behind most of our sins, and pride drowns out love. But as we ponder the work of Christ, our pride should be diminished. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul says, God predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. Paul later on goes on to say that God's gracious work, because of God's gracious work, we have no room to boast. So if God has loved us in this way due to no merit of our own, we did nothing to deserve this, how can we act with anything less towards other people, even the ones who don't deserve it in our eyes? So, Ed Welch says this about how God works this love into our hearts. He says God fills us. He pours out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, whom he he has given us. God actually showers us with himself. It is not available to us when we adopt the shape of a cup of psychological needs. That is, if we want to be filled so that we can feel happy or better about ourselves, then we will never be truly deluged with God's love. The cup of our own desires is never able to catch the flood of God's love and blessing. When this cup of I wants is broken, 
it leaves us with the number of shapes or identities that God has given us. Priests, ambassadors, children of God, and Christians. We think it's safer and more effective to look to other people to relieve our emptiness. The love that we desire, however, can only be found in the living God. So the love of God is the only thing that can fill up that God-shaped hole in our hearts. The love of God towards us is so radical, it's so scandalous, it's free and transformative, that it shouldn't only change our relationship with Him, it also has to change our relationship with others. So we've talked about how when God saves us, He reorients us to Himself, He changes our heart, He changes our desires, and then He reorients us towards other people in our relationships with other people so that we are loving and serving and not fearing and needing. So we can take big risk in relationships in our lives, and big risk in relationships with other people. It's scary to enter into relationships with other people sometimes. It's risky. It's costly. It can be messy. We don't have to fear rejection or harm by others because we are accepted and loved by the king of the universe. It changes everything. This reorientation towards God helps us to see others' true value and function. So others weren't created to be feared. They weren't created just to make our lives better. They weren't created to fill us up. But they were created for us to love. This is contrary to what you hear in culture, this thinking that you need to look out for yourself first. You need to have your needs met first. The worldly definition for success is not how many people you are serving, but how many people are serving you. But this is the completely opposite way of what it means to be like Christ. Loving others isn't easy. It can be messy. It can be uncomfortable. One author says this about it. He says, Loving others makes life less comfortable. It means that I give up my own agenda for a Saturday morning in, in order to help a neighbor. It means that I get hurt when someone moves away. It means that people stay at our house when I would prefer to be surrounded with just my immediate family. Isn't that just like God's Word? Just when we think we have adapted, adapted it to a comfortable middle-class lifestyle, it messes everything up. It tells us to love others in the same way that we have been loved by God. So we know that we need to love instead of fear, but who do we need to love and serve? Scripture kind of gives us several categories of people that we're, we are to love and serve. I mean, first and foremost, and ultimately, we serve God. We've already talked about this. We've talked about how we're, we are reoriented towards God. And, and through Christ, we're able to do as Christ has commanded us to do in Matthew 22. And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. But the secular culture that we live in, the culture that we're surrounded with, points us to ourselves. It kind of points us away from God and, and, and points us to ourselves. Kind of the, the, the mantra that, that we could use to sum up is, know thyself, thine own self be true. That's kind of what our culture would tell us. Take care of yourself first. Do what makes you feel good. Do what's right in your own eyes. But Scripture points us in another direction. It says, know and serve God. Know and serve and love your neighbor. 
Only then will you truly be able to know what it means to, to fulfill your uh, purpose in life because that's what you were created for. This is what God made you to do. So we're called to love and serve God first and foremost. But Scripture also calls us to love and serve our enemies. And that's a tough one. That's a really tough one for us. You know, enemies are kind of characterized as anyone who wants to harm you or anyone who has harmed you in the past. You know, do I really have to love these people who've caused pain in my life? Do I really have to love these people who've caused such heartache, who've done me wrong, who've treated me this way? Do I really, really have to love them or can I just, you know, kind of toss them to the side and leave them behind? Luke chapter 6, Jesus answers this question. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would, would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. So this is tough teaching, right? It goes against our, our nature. We want to get even. We want to, uh, we want to see those people suffer who, is, who have caused harm for us. But this is why the gospel is so scandalous. It turns worldly thinking on its head. It hurts to love enemies. It isn't safe to love enemies, and it can be scary to love enemies. But we need to think about this for a minute. Aren't we described as enemies of the Lord in Scripture? We're born into rebellion. Our sin makes us enemies of a holy God. Yet he displayed his love for us in this, that he sent Christ to die on the cross while we were still his enemies. So if we are to obey Jesus and love as he is loved and love as he has commanded us to love, to, to love, show that love to others, we're going to have to extend that love even to those who are against us, even to those who are our enemies. Uh, Ed Welch uh, has some uh, really neat things to say about this, uh, just almost some practical advice. He says, when confronted with enemies, we should go directly to the Psalms. If we are not sure how to feel or what to say, when we are inclined to take matters into our own hands, the Psalms teach us to trust God. When we would uh, insulate ourselves from pain, they teach us to trust God. Instead of vowing that we will never again move close to another person, we learn to trust God. Instead of extinguishing hope, the Psalms teach us to trust God. In the Psalms, it was the glory of God that was David's mission, not his own vindication. Welch goes on to describe what it looks like to love our enemies and says, God says that you treat enemies the same way you treat friends and family. To love In this way, we need both power and discernment. We need power because we are incapable of loving the way Christ is loved. We need discernment because it is sometimes difficult to know what form love should take. 
As a result, anytime we are aware that we have specific enemies, we should seek counsel from the church in order to discern how to express that love. You know, this is an important point. Love for enemies may take on different actions from love of friends. You know, love of an enemy may include turning them over to earthly authorities if they've broken the law. It may mean physical separation to avoid further harm. Love doesn't always look the same in every circumstance. So we're called to love the Lord, we're called to love our enemies, but we're also called to love unbelievers. Now, unbelievers could fit into several of these different categories. They could be our physical family, uh, it could be our neighbors, our coworkers, lifelong friends, uh, or even enemies. But I think it's important for us just to spend a minute on thinking about how to love the lost. First, and I, I really believe most importantly, we have to learn to pray for them. Pray for them intentionally. We have to be prepared. We spent, uh, earlier in the summer, uh, spent time preparing ourselves to share the gospel. We have to be prepared to share the gospel, to share the hope that we have within us at all times. This is a real important point. We need to be thoughtful towards them. We don't need to treat them like they're some gospel project, okay? We don't need to treat them like, you know, we just want to get them to uh, convert, and then we can kind of put that feather in our cap. You know, I led them to Christ. I did this. I did that. People are going to see right through that. We can't do that. And, of course, we do nothing anyway. It's God's work. So we have to display Christ's love to them. We have to be an example of that to them. We have to love them in an uncommon way, in a way that makes them question why we would even do that. And, and we can't do that uh, just kind of making it up as we go. We have to truly love them, and God is going to have to give us uh, the power to do that. Another category that we're called to love are our neighbors. And I'm not just talking about the people in our neighborhoods. I'm talking about the people in our communities. Uh, Jesus teaches us in the parable of the Good Samaritan, this is kind of a catch-all category. We don't just love the people who are just like us, okay? We're usually going to live in a neighborhood uh, where a lot of folks are in the same kind of category of life, if you will. Uh, And so we're not just talking about our physical neighbors. We have to love those who are of a different age, a different Uh, socioeconomic status, a different race, a different family situations. We're called to love all of our neighbors throughout our entire community. Uh, We're called to love our physical families. And on the surface, this seems like this would be the easiest group to love, right? But uh, a little life experience will teach us this is sometimes the toughest group to love. We're often hurt by the ones who are closest to us, and we often hurt the ones who are closest to us. Uh, They can bear the brunt of our sins. So this is where we learn forgiveness, right? This is where the rubber meets the road. This is how we learn to love unconditionally and learn to be loved by others and to receive love. So our last category here is we're called to love each other. We're called to love the church. We're called to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. The New Testament is full of examples to this. There seems to be an emphasis on this in Scripture. 
In Galatians chapter 6, Paul says, So then we have the opportunity, so then as we have the opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So one of the biggest evangelistic tools that we have is to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. The church should be a place where we should demonstrate this love to a watching world because they are watching. It means that we live in love and not fear of each other. And we have to be a shining example of what Christian love is. So this is who we are called to love. And I think we could basically say it's everyone. Uh, but And that love is going to look different uh, for some people. But we are called to love uh, everyone. What shape does this loving and serving take? So uh, if you've been to a wedding in the last year, you've probably heard 1 Corinthians chapter 13 read. It's always, you know, read at weddings. And it is a, you know, a great thing to be read at weddings. And it's but we've begun to think of it almost as a way to demonstrate the love in a marriage relationship. And of course it is for a marriage relationship, but it's for all relationships. It's almost a love guide that that we really need to pay attention to. So I'm just going to read a portion of that. This is 1 Corinthians 13, 3-7. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. So I think that a good project for us uh, this week would be just in your quiet time to take some time to, to... get away from everything, and just spend a little time with this chapter. Uh, maybe bring some paper and write down how you can apply uh, these truths about love to relationships in your life. Not only relationships, if you, if you spend any time on social media, sometimes the way Christians present themselves, uh, especially Christians with certain theological bents, can be very arrogant and unloving. So be careful of that. I think that's something we really have to to look out for. But this chapter is great for all relationships. It helps us develop. uh, It gives us a clear picture of what love looks like. And it's a very selfless picture. So how do we develop a servant's heart? How do we carry out this heart of love, and we're just going to spend a little time uh, kind of wrapping all this up with some application, just some practical points uh, for ways to help us develop this love in our lives. So we're called to live in these relationships, right? We're called to love people, and, and as we've stated, this is going to be messy. It can be uncomfortable. It will be uncomfortable, and, and it will be difficult. We're not called to live in isolation. It means involving ourselves in other people's lives, uh, doing things that, quite honestly, are just not fun sometimes and can be just inconvenient. It gets in the way of our good times uh, sometimes. So, the first thing I want us to consider is our motivation 
when it comes to loving and serving others. And this is a tough one. This is a really tough one. Even in our desire to love others, sometimes our desire to love can be born out of a desire to be loved. So how do you know? How do you know what your desire is? And I think one way, and this was really convicting to me uh, when I studied this this week, but one way that we can know is what is your response when someone doesn't respond to your love in a manner that you wanted them to? What's your response? When you make a move of love towards someone and they respond with indifference, or maybe they even respond with rejection or anger, if you have this clear expectation in your mind of how you want them to respond to you and they don't respond in that way and then you're devastated over that, it makes you angry, it makes you sad, it makes you depressed, there's a good chance that you weren't actually acting out of a genuine heart of love for them. That's a tough thing to consider because I think we're probably, every single one of us in here are guilty of that. So that's something that we need to think about. What's your motivation? Another practical way that we can really begin to live this love out in our lives is just to picture the way Jesus loved. We have to keep that at the forefront of our minds and use that as the template, as the example. This is what we're striving for. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Jesus Christ, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So we have to study the life of Christ. This is something... Uh, we need to do daily. Notice the way that he loved uh, selflessly, the way that he loved selflessly, the way that he humbled himself, the way that he emptied himself. This is what we strive for. Budget deficits are bad, but love deficits are good. Uh, One author says this. He says, When the kingdom of God is ruling our hearts, We aspire more to serve than to be served. Honor more than to be honored. Love more than be loved. This doesn't mean that we don't care about being loved. It simply means that we always want to outdo others in love. So if we just kept that one thought in our minds to outdo others in love, how good would our relationships be, honestly? And we're kind of jumping ahead a little bit, but we're going to start a marriage seminar uh, I guess in a few weeks, and how good would your marriage be for your for you married people if you always strove to outdo your spouse in love? I think it could be transformative. When you do this, do you run the risk of a lopsided relationship? Of course, you absolutely do. You might not get the response that you were hoping for. It might take time. It might not ever come. But is the relationship we have with God lopsided? I think the answer to that is absolutely. He always loves first and most. He always makes the first move 
And this is what he's called on us to do in our lives, in our relationships. So we need to consider our motivations. We need to look to the example of Christ. And the third thing we need to do is learn how to regularly pray for people. Pray for their relationship with the Lord. Pray that the Lord will give you a heart of love towards them. Pray that he will remove a heart that's driven by fear. Ask others to pray for you in this regard as we struggle with this. Ask for prayers from your uh, friends, from your spouse. We need to confess our sin to God and repent of it because we are going to fail, we are going to struggle. The fourth thing that we need to think about is we need to think about how we can minister to people in this way, how we can love people in specific ways. We don't want to just have this kind of vague, I'm going to love people well, I'm going to outdo love, but never really think about the nuts and bolts of it. Never really come up with a plan or strategy to, to, to love people well. It's almost like we're, we're going to scheme for the good of others. We're going to scheme for that relationship. We're going to work at it. Everybody knows that's been in any relationship for a period of time that for it to be successful, it's going to take a lot of work. And that's something we have to actively be doing. So, as we do this, as we incorporate these things in our lives, what can we expect? What are the results of loving and serving others rather than fearing them, rather than simply being needy? One of the first results I think that we'll see is unity in our relationships. As we begin to love others well, uh, we begin to experience a unity that should be manifest in the body of Christ. Unity doesn't just mean getting along. It means living in a way in which you are all focused first and foremost on Christ. That your eyes are collectively fixed on the eyes of Jesus. This is where we find unity. Secondly, we're going to experience genuine respect and appreciation for others. As you grow in love for other people, as you begin to uh, want to know them and on deeper levels, as you become interested in their lives, as you scheme to love them well, you're going to know them more deeply. Uh, we're going to get out of our own little selfish and protective bubbles. And you're going to begin to see other people in profoundly new ways. I think a real practical example of this, and I've seen this uh, in this church, as we begin to engage in ministries outside uh, Ministries with people who aren't necessarily like us. Church Under the Bridge is, is a good example of that. As I've seen people engage in that, people begin to see the homeless as more than just folks who have gone down a bad path, as more than people who are just addicts or people who are drains on our society or people who just annoy us when they ask us for money. People begin to see them as people as people with the story, as people with emotions and feelings, as people who have dreams and aspirations and talents and things to offer this world. And ultimately, we will see them as image bearers of the Lord. So I think the last uh, thing that, that we can expect to see as we begin to love others is we begin to experience peace 
joy, long-suffering, gentleness, we begin to experience the fruits of the Spirit. As we live in the fear of the Lord and, and the love of others, we'll begin to more fully understand what it means to be controlled by the Spirit of God. So, are we to fear, are we to fear God just to fear Him? Are we to fear others? Are we to love others just to love them? Is that, is that all that, that we're here for? I think there's greater things at stake. I think to love others, to fear the Lord, the glory of God is at stake. God has created us to know Him, to worship Him as the majestic King of the universe, as the one true God, as the Savior of all men. God is glorified when we rightly fear Him, as if we are standing overlooking the Grand Canyon full of awe and wonder. As for love, hear these words from our Savior. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. As disciples of the one true God, this should be what we are known for, our love. Let's pray.